What's up, y'all? Welcome to Procurement Foundry's 10-Year Talks, 15-minute podcast interviewing battle-tested procurement supply chain professionals who have the scars to prove it. We ask the same five questions every week, providing you with chewable bits of expertise. I'm your host, Katie McEwen, the Procurement Girl, representing BuyerQuest, the most user-friendly procurement solution in the world, an integrated Amazon business partner. Amazon business customers can now take advantage of procurement controls enabled by BuyerQuest. Check out BuyerQuest.com to learn more. I'm so excited to introduce y'all to our rockstar guest today, Lawrence. He has over 20 years of experience in procurement and supply chain. He's a senior leader at a Fortune 50 company, a leader in aerospace and defense. He's a top influencer in the space, a best-selling author, and a SIG sourcing Supernova Hall of Fame member. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Lawrence. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what you've been working on this year. What happened? I've been working. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned I'm in aerospace and defense and, and obviously not a great time to be in that industry. Uh, you know, we're, we have a global pandemic. Folks are, are not traveling very much, which means our customers are having some real challenges. And so most of what I've been doing has to do with uh, affordability and liquidity. So I've been uh, doing some very significant multi-billion dollar RFXs. Um, I say the X part because most of them are actually RFSs, but some are RFPs. And uh, I'm really trying to, to optimize our environment and our supplier ecosystem so that we can get through this and be positioned for growth on the back end. So it has been uh, lots of not sleeping, but really meaningful, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So you've obviously seen a lot of success in this space. Who was that one person that strongly inspired your road to success? Does a, a certain mentor or coach come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate. I've actually had several. Uh, the The very first mentoring thing that I ever had was, um, I'm very introverted, which those of you who see me speak at conferences wouldn't know. But the reason you don't know that is because I used to uh, I used to go to work and I would work for four hours and I'd have lunch and eat at my desk because they didn't pay me very much. And then I work another four hours. And to me, it was great. I was getting two half days, right? And my lead came up to me, I don't know, four or five months in and said, dude, you got to stop doing that. I'm like, what? And he says, hey, this is a relationship company. If you don't know people, you can't get stuff done. And so you need to, to start going to lunch with people and actually be social. And, and that was like the very first, you know, in, in my 30 some odd years here, um, uh, kind of mentoring kick, I'll call it. And I've had a lot of people that did that, you know, thankfully came up to me and said, uh, dude, you got to stop doing that, or you got to start doing this or, or whatever. And the one who's really the most um, influential to me, I actually dedicated my leadership book to him, his name is Mike Luxembourg. And he was not only my mentor for probably a you know, about a decade or so. Um, but he did it. He started when we were working together and he actually continued after he retired for about four years, continuing to mentor me uh, and just be a sounding board and just a, a really phenomenal guy who is very much into the, I want to grow talent and help people and whatnot. And I've tried to pay that forward, uh, you know, all of my mentors, not just him, uh, by actually doing a lot of mentoring and, and, um, and supporting other folks in our industry, uh, both inside the company I work for as, as well as beyond that. 
Oh, that's fantastic. What great advice for you to, to get out and get out of your comfort zone and, and network and meet with other folks. And because that is truly how you how you grow. So that's that's awesome. That's great advice. Yeah. And it, it's really it's one of those things that you don't know, if you don't know. Right. And, and so to me, I was thinking about how it breaks my day up and, you know, and I, I'm refreshed and relaxed and ready to do more and dive into the work. But what I didn't understand was that's not how stuff gets done. And every company's got a different culture, but you got to have a mentor who can help you understand that culture and how to succeed. And in fact, I actually always, uh, I always advocate that you have two. You have a technical mentor. So that's somebody that's really good in, in your uh, space that you work in. And then kind of a business mentor, somebody who understands how your, your enterprise uses the space you work in to create products or services, uh, drive revenue, whatever it is that, that that's the, the business enablement, business value of your function. Because not everybody's in, on, on, in a line organization. You don't always, you know, create things that are sold or, or sell things, but everybody supports the enterprise doing it. And if you have those two mentors, you can understand how to do what you do better and understand how to further your enterprise better. It's a pretty good combination. Yes, yes, absolutely. So before we move on to the next question, I'm curious. So when he recommended that you skip your private lunchtime and go out with other folks, did you immediately do it? Did you just kind of jump in with both feet or did it take some time to get the courage up? It took some arm twisting. Um, I, I sort of, I started like, I kind of made a compromise with those. I'll do one day a week and then it became two and then it became three. And then, you know, um, and, and, you know, part of it was the whole, like, I, I couldn't afford to buy lunch every day. And so I felt kind of weird when a lot of people would go to a restaurant or go to the cafeteria or something. Um, so that was part of it, but the biggest part of it was the excuse of, I didn't like even today, I've got a small circle of really, really close friends. I'm not good at socializing. And so when I, like when I speak at conferences, I have to psych myself up to do that. And, and, you know, now I've given the secret out, but normally people don't realize that I'm not good at that. It's just that it's, I mean, I can do it, but it's not natural and it's not a, you know, I don't get a lot of energy from it. Some people, when they work the room, that's like their thing. And they, it, it's really, it, it builds the energy. For me, I go decompress afterwards and like, you know, go read something or, you know, watch a movie or whatever, right? And yeah, so, yeah. And so it was something that was not my nature, but I fake it really, really well. And if I didn't fake it really, really well, I couldn't have gotten to where I am uh, at all. I mean, it, it was, that was like fundamental career advice that I needed to know. And, um, you know, I, I'm just really glad that uh, uh, my lead's name is, we called him Yama. His last name was Yamashita. And I can't even remember his first name. It's been so long. Um, but if he hadn't told me that, uh, I guarantee you, I wouldn't have lasted as long and I wouldn't have climbed as high because I just didn't know, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's great advice for a lot of those introverts out there that you're not going to climb as high as you probably think, unless you have a good group of people around you that you're networking with. So that's great. Absolutely. So what, so what's the one innovative thing that you're seeing this year that's, that's really uh, taking the industry by storm? Uh, there's quite a few. And, and you know, one of the uh, good things about the pandemic, right, is that the whole supply chain uh, function has really come into prominence, right? Folks realize how important it is. And in that innovation is becoming a really big deal. Um, silly story, but but it's kind of cool. Uh, through, at the beginning of the lockdowns and whatnot, 
one of the only uh, stores that didn't run out of toilet paper, the commercial, or excuse me, the uh, whatever consumer type of toilet paper is uh, Trader Joe's. And it's not that they had a different supply chain than anybody else, it's that they got creative. One of their buyers called up one of the hotel chains and said, hey, uh, we need this and you guys don't have any customers, let's make a deal, right? And so innovation can be stuff like simply just thinking outside the box. Uh, and, and I love examples like that because it, it really adds a lot of value um, to, you know, sometimes we, we deal with contracts all the time and dotting I's and crossing T's and we get really, really narrowly focused. And, you know, we have to think bigger and, and, and more innovatively. One of the ways we do that, that I'm seeing a lot of companies doing because there's so much uh, critical, uh, you know, procurement and supply chain work going on right now is uh, what I'm calling um, kind of the, the agile procurement. And it's not necessarily um, a specific thing. It's more using things like scaled agile, like we use in IT in procurement, where you're doing things in sprints, you're working things more collaboratively, uh, collaboratively uh, with bidders and just allowing ourselves to move faster. So for example, I got a, uh, an RFP out, well, it's actually a RFS, in um, about six weeks, that's for about a billion two worth of service. And, you know, the team that put that together, we worked some really long days, don't get me wrong, but we did in six weeks what normally would take about six months. And the way we did that was we, we broke it into, uh, here's the statement of work for the things that are in the existing environment. Here's the statement of objectives for things that we need in the future and creating a process so that we get the bidders what they need to do the right thing. And then we have a series of solutioning sessions where they come in and say, hey, we're thinking about, and we kind of put guide rails out. So help them understand how to sort of massage into, okay, here's my final bid. And the final bid will be something that will add value and be differentiating, right? right? And by doing it that way, instead of the typical ye verily thou shalt, you know, here's our statement of work, here's our SLAs, here's our terms, you know, agree to everything and tell me your price. I think you, it, it allows us to go a lot faster and allows us to get, uh, you know, much better value from the supply chain. And I think gives them opportunities that they really have always wanted to do. And, and a lot of times the buy side hasn't let them. So I, oh. I think things like that, and that's just one example in, in my own team, but there's, I think uh, most companies, at least I've talked to a lot of peers who are doing very similar things, right? We're not doing the old, you know, what, what part of the customer is always right, you know, do what I tell you to thing. We're being more innovative and more collaborative with our, with our suppliers, which means we have to do procurement a little differently. And you have to be willing to evolve like that to be successful. If, if COVID hasn't taught us anything, it's that we have to be flexible. That's oh great. yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and, yeah. and you know, the, the whole risk management thing is very different than, uh, than most folks think. Although I will say the company I work for was around in 1918 and we actually dusted off our, our uh, business continuity plans from 1918 and looked at them compared to what I, we have now. Uh, not everybody gets to do that, but you know, it's, that is an advantage of, of companies been around for a long time. Wow. Fascinating. Oh, I can't imagine. I'd love to have an idea of what that looks like. Well, the funny thing like, is, it's other, other than the technology, it's really not any different than what we're doing today. I mean, it was literally maybe 75% the same, um, which says if you got a darn good plan, uh, you know, you could, you can dust it off. It's not like we've never had pandemics before, but we haven't had one that big. Right. And so, 
you know, it was, uh, it was very interesting with a you know, global supply chain. What do you do if, if things get shut down and, and how do you redirect things and all that? And, and most of that was already written. It was pretty cool. Wow, I guess nineteen eighteen. You know, they the world had seen a few things by that point. So yeah, that makes sense. So can you tell us one unique thing about you uh, that maybe in your professional circle people really wouldn't know about you? Uh, I think people who know me well already know this, but people who don't don't. I I, I uh, did almost fifty years of martial arts and. Um, you know, a lot of my, my original books actually started in that space. I've done, done business ones and, you know, like the contract professionals playbook and things like that. But I started off in that space and it's one of those things that really, um, uh, it really is beneficial, especially in this industry. Cause we do a lot of negotiations, a lot of high stress stuff. Right. And so because of doing martial arts and actually uh, uh, sort of implemented that work in security part-time at a, at a stadium. Um, I've been in over 300 fights. Uh, I have been punched and kicked and actually stabbed and shot, um, which is not, a, I don't recommend that. Um, but if somebody's, you know, freaking out because you're getting heated language in negotiations, I just sit back, chill, going, well, he's not trying to kill me. So, I mean, you know, I don't see why I get upset. Right. And so I can be calmer. Yeah. I, I can be calmer in a negotiation than a lot of folks because of that kind of mindset from the martial arts and from the experiences that I've had uh, doing security and that sort of stuff. And, and it's, um, it's amazing some of the similarities. Uh, I, I, I've done a lot of study of, of like um, Sun Tzu and Miyamoto Musashi and other folks like that, even written some books around those subjects. And you take some of those ancient sort of principles and, and apply them to business today, and you get the same fundamentals. And the same thing about, you know, the human uh, behavior and interaction kind of stuff is if you can bring the calm and you can be responding instead of reacting, you control the situation, which is really important in negotiations. And if you're, if you're getting in your head and you're getting emotional, then, then you're reacting and you've lost. And so, you know, I find that to be a really, uh, a really valuable thing, even though it's, uh, it's not common. I mean, almost everybody I know, like took martial arts for, for, you know, at least a little while as a kid or something. I just never quit. That's so what was your favorite uh, practice in martial arts? What type of martial arts did you favor? Uh, the one I did the longest is a, a form of karate called Gojiru, which means hard, gentle style or hard, soft style. And um, it was it was created by a guy named Chojun Miyagi. So if you, you know the karate kid, the, the Mr. Miyagi, oh, yeah. that's where they got the idea from. And um, it's just a very it's it, it, it's really tied to it's kind of funny. It's the same thing. There's an old uh, saying that it's more important who you work for than what you do in terms of job satisfaction and all that. Same thing with martial arts. I just happen to find an instructor who's a really great dude, um, teaches to, to my learning style really well, um, just really interesting. And so I stayed with that one, not because of the art so much, but because of the instructor. And it's the same thing, you know, with my, my business career, I've had really awesome managers who allowed me to, to not stay in my box and to create and innovate and do unusual things. I mean, the, the job I have didn't exist until I created it. The organization I work in, I invented. Um, you don't get to do that very often, right? And, and that was purely because I'm able to identify and solve unmet business needs and put together, you know, kind of a, 
a, a real business case around why we need to do something differently. And I've, I've always worked for people who listen when I do that. And so, you know, same thing with the, with martial arts, I've had some that, that were, uh, you know, bounced around between a whole bunch of different instructors that just, it wasn't a good fit. And when I found one that was, I was there for know, 22 years, I think something like that. Um, I finally got too old. I finally stopped two years ago, but uh, I've been doing it for a long time. But you're still keeping up with working out, right? Your, your son. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So that it, uh, um, for those who didn't have our pre-conversation, my, my son's a certified conditioning, strength and conditioning coach and personal trainer, nutritionist, and he runs a fitness company. So um, I have to work out because A, it's great for my health uh, and B, um, I don't want him disappointed in me. So, you know, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I'm very diligent about that. That's all. That's awesome. Well, you still got to make sure that he thinks daddy's proud. So yeah, that's great. So what's one piece of advice you'd give to folks that are trying to claw up the ranks and see some of the success that you've been able to see? Well, I think part of it is, and I sort of mentioned it previously, part of it is working for somebody who lets you do your thing, right? Um, there's, every company has room for improvement, right? And, and yet not every leader will let their employees kind of get outside the box a bit and try to solve those problems. I mean, I've been really fortunate, uh, uh, you know, more than 30 years at the same company. And except for my first, maybe four and a half years or so, every role I've had was either created for me or by me. So I've had this really weird, unusual career, right? And the reason I've been able to do that is because I work for people who allowed me to do that. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I find myself working for somebody who didn't allow me to do that, I went and found a new job. And so even though I've been with the same company for a lot of times, I've literally had five careers. And so, you know, that's part of the thing is knowing uh, that your, your next step is progressing you towards something as opposed to moving away from something, right? You always want to be moving forward. And you want to do it uh, in an area that builds to your strengths and where you're going to learn something and do interesting and meaningful work. And more often than not, that's tied to who you work for, not what you do. I, I didn't think I was going to be, you know, in sourcing procurement. In fact, I, way back when I first started my, I had two job options when I first started, I interviewed for a procurement agent role and I interviewed for a cost scanning role. And I actually took the cost accounting job, which was a disastrous, really bad decision. But um, I got better and I actually learned a lot from it because um, I, I thought, you know, I was pretty detail oriented and kind of a numbers guy, but the, t the work was not meaningful. It was just very uninteresting to me. And so I managed to be able to, even in that very first role, I was able to start doing things like I, I, I started working with cost policy and started doing disclosure statements and doing audits and things like that. So I was able to move beyond this, just doing journal entries thing that I wanted to kill myself, frankly. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm only joking a little, but do we, I mean, one of the ladies I, I started with, she'd done 20 years, literally the same job 20 times, right? Uh, to me, it has to be 20 years of experience, not one year of experience 20 times. I just couldn't handle that. 
But because I work for somebody who allowed me to do more, I'm getting my journal entries done and making continuous improvements. So I got a little extra time in the day. Now I go over and talk to the folks in cost policy and they're like, hey, we have to cram up this disclosure statement for this new you know, thing we're doing with working with the government and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hey, I could help with that. That sounds like fun. That's more like what I learned in college. This journal entry stuff is like, Ugh. right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and by volunteering, you know, in, in improving what I did, freeing up some time, volunteering for more, I got tons of opportunities and, and you know, kind of got this reputation for being the guy who could solve hard problems that nobody else could, which gave me more opportunities. And so that's really, you know, when you boil it down, um, never say no, unless it's to a, you know, supplier negotiations, right? Always negotiate deadlines. Don't, don't, don't say no to more, you know, more um, responsibility. And work for somebody who lets you, you know, grow in advance, right? It, it's uh, however many years you're working, every year should be a new set of experiences so that you're you're adding more value for yourself and for your organization and, and not doing the same thing over and over again. And that's to me, uh, regardless of your, your title or rank or role or whatever, interesting, meaningful work where you're learning stuff all the time, that's what's really cool. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest thing about titles and, you know, rank and all that is it just tends to pay a little better. This is true. This is true. That's, that's great advice. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us. And congratulations, Lawrence. God bless you. Thanks to everyone who joined Tenure Talks today. We stream live every Friday on LinkedIn and available anywhere you get your podcasts. See y'all next Friday. Have a great weekend. Thanks again, Thanks. Lawrence. Thanks. Great talking with you, Katie. It's great talking with you.